This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our special holiday edition of the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm so glad you could join us today to celebrate the most joyous time of the year. Today, we have a special holiday treat for you. We will be talking with New York Times bestselling author Marta McDowell about her book, Unearthing the Secret Garden, The Plants and Places That Inspired Francis Hodgson Burnett. In her book, Marta tells of the fascinating writing and gardening life of Hodgson Burnett. Her book delves into the central theme of the children's classic, which is that great healing can occur when people show kindness to each other. And I believe that is a message that is perfect for the holidays. Okay, and now I'd like to introduce Marta McDowell to the show. Marta, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Catherine. It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed your book so much. I just really couldn't wait to bring it to the Bird Hugger listening audience. I'm sure so many of them, like I did, read that book as a young person and has very happy associations with it. So do you think maybe you could start off, first of all, by telling us what led you to write this book? Well, like you, Catherine, I loved this book as a child. And since then, I've read it many, many times. And so in a way, the question is, why did I wait to, you know, have this be my fifth book (laughs) instead of my first? But, you know, sometimes things wait until the proper time. So I think that for me, like many, many people who garden, this book, touched a little chord when I was probably nine or 10 years old about the magic of gardening, about how plants and a particular place can really be something really special and out of the ordinary. I think like most children, I always liked that feeling of a fort. I remember You know, there was a big blue spruce tree in front of my house growing up, and I liked to go under its branches, even though they were prickly, and sort of not hide out, but that was like sort of my particular place. And the secret garden, you know, it's like it's that locked space that's kind of forbidden that you find a special something for you. That's how it was for me. In terms of setting the stage for our listeners, could you give a synopsis of the story? Sure. So the story is about a little girl named Mary Lennox. At the very beginning, 
like most fairy tales, the first thing you do is get rid of the parents. Well, in this particular case, the parents both die in India of some infectious disease. And so, you know, Mary, who was born of British parents, is then sent to England to live with her mother's brother. So it's her uncle, Archibald Craven. He is a widower. That's about all we know about him. You know, so Mary goes on this voyage and then is met by the housekeeper and brought to this big estate called Misselthwaite Manor. And it's in Yorkshire, so it's out on the moors. It has that sort of Gothic quality of a big house that's under-occupied. And it has extensive gardens that are described when this kind of miserable little girl, she's not only lonely, but she has been spoiled her whole life. She goes out exploring and she's told, basically, you can go anywhere in the gardens, but there's one garden that's been locked up for 10 years and no one goes in there. So that, of course, is what most intrigues her is where is this forbidden garden and how can she get in? And so she finds her way into the garden with the help of a robin. And, you know, she kind of is befriended by this robin. And the story develops from there. She meets two other children who also play roles in the story. But it's really about Mary Lennox seeing a garden come back to life. It starts out in the winter or very early spring, and she sees bulbs come up, and she kind of discovers gardening along the way. It's such a sweet story. It's one of redemption and healing, as you point out in the book. And of course, lots of secrets. Children love secrets, and adults do too. (laughs) I know (laughs) I do. So Burnett creates so much suspense around this mysterious, long-neglected garden surrounded by four walls with a creaky door and a lock, a place where no one is allowed, as you said. You know, I don't know about you, but as a child, the more I was told not to do something, the more I wanted to try it. So it makes the story very enticing, especially for a young person. Absolutely. You know, it's like in the six weeks before Christmas, if a parent said, don't go in that closet. Of course, that was the (laughs) one place that you absolutely felt that you must go. So, you know, again, I always loved the book. And at one point I just said, well, if she could write about gardening in such a personal way, she must have been a gardener herself. But I knew nothing about this author. You know, she's not a household name anymore. I mean, if you say Frances Hodgson Burnett, I mean, most people looked at me like you're writing about who? But people do recognize The Secret Garden. Right. Now, she wrote over 50 books during her lifetime, but The Secret Garden is the number one favorite of readers. I know she wrote uh, Little Lord Fauntleroy and Making of a Marchioness, which were, you know, both big in their time. But I think The Secret Garden managed to transcend date and time. Why do you think that is? Well, again, it's a story that appeals. And also, it's a story that she put a lot of herself into. You know, it's always a little dicey to ascribe to fiction an author's biography. But I really feel, for a variety of reasons, that this was a very personal book 
for Burnett. And I think that that story kind of continues in people's reactions to it. Right. So as you say in the book, Burnett seemed to live a life of going from riches to rags and then back to riches. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. So she was born in Manchester in the north of England into a family that was very comfortable. I mean, they certainly weren't nobility. They weren't aristocrats. Her father had a shop. He sold fancy household goods, but they were doing very well. She was the middle child of five. You know, they had a nice, comfortable lifestyle. And unfortunately, her father died when she was young. And the family really fell on hard times. Part of it was just the loss of the major breadwinner. Her mother tried to take over the business. It didn't go so well. And it wasn't entirely her fault because Manchester was an economy that really relied on the cotton industry. And as soon as the Civil War started in America, that cotton supply was really a problem. The whole city really had economic hard times. They even called it the cotton famine. And so finally, Burnett's mother moved all five kids and herself to Tennessee because she had a brother there. And so they were, you know, replanted, if you will, in the hills of eastern Tennessee, in the area around Knoxville and Newmarket. Now, she had the orphan trope in that book. It makes me wonder, with the sudden death of her father, her being so young, if she herself didn't feel like an orphan. And that may very well have been, because she was only half an orphan, right? She had her mother for a very long time, but she also was displaced at that point in her life. So again, that could have been part of it, although The Secret Garden was not written for another 30 years. So it was a really long period from that time and actually when she started writing, because she started, her first published piece was when she was 19 years old. And she wrote from then on, essentially onto her deathbed. So it took her a long time to get to the secret garden. But really, from the time she started writing, she made a lot of money. She quickly out-earned her brothers, who were both working in the dry goods business for the uncle. You know, she really brings the family back up to a level of comfort and then eventually really starts making big money because she had some very popular novels. You mentioned Little Lord Fauntleroy. It was a huge bestseller. Everyone was reading it. Many of her novels she dramatized, so she made money multiple times off of each work because she'd serialize it for a periodical It would come out in book form, and then she would rewrite it for the stage. And so she knew how to maximize her earnings, and she was always quite interested in, you know, how she was going to make money. So tell me about her two husbands. To me, they seem like night and day. (laughs) Well, yes, she had, again, for the period, remember, Burnett is born in 1849, So the fact that she was married and divorced twice was really not the usual thing. Her first marriage, she marries the doctor. 
Swan Burnett was his name. She was a local boy from Tennessee. He was studying to be a doctor. They got married. They had their first son a year or so later. Then they all moved to Paris because he's still continuing his studies to be an eye doctor. And she's supporting the family with her writing at that point. They have another child, Vivian, the second boy, in Paris. And she really is the breadwinner. But she did what she needed to do. I think her husband did set up a practice and was reasonably successful. They lived in Washington, D.C. when they came back. And yet, you know, she was always very, very ambitious. She once wrote to her sister and said, I want my chestnuts off a higher bough. Like, she, you know, you can imagine her always reaching for the next thing. And she had a sort of literary salon and she traveled a lot, again, mostly on business. But I think just over the years, her first marriage just kind of pulled apart because, you know, why? Who knows why? You know, you're never sure in these cases. Then their older son, Lionel, contracts what we call tuberculosis. They called it consumption. And he died in 1890. He was 16 years old. So I think that that was really wrenching, you know, for the whole family. But again, by that time, they were pretty much living apart. So when he died, she was in Paris and he was in Washington, D.C. with their other son. By the time their second son graduates from Harvard, they've been separated for a very long time, and they decide to divorce. And she does briefly remarry with, she marries a man named Stephen Townsend. He'd kind of been in the picture for a while, not sure what the whole story is there, but it lasted, if they were together a year, that was a lot. It seemed like a real misstep, I think, from her letters. It read like, well, you know, after the wedding, I'm sure I can change him. Never a good idea. And it just didn't work out. Yeah, I was going to say, you seem quite the rake, like right out of one of her novels. Yeah, and quite domineering. And I think he had this idea that, you know, he would be in control of her money, which, of course, she was not going to let that happen. And he was trying to control her friends, you know, who she saw. and. As I said, it did not last. Right. And that was it for her and marriage. <laughs> right. It's funny how as you read the book, you do pick up these undernotes of long-held grief. And I wonder if maybe she was exercising some of the grief over the loss of her son and the two failed marriages. And then, of course, you know, in the book, the love and innocence of children seem to bring the father and son back to life. It seems like it's almost it's her magnum opus. Yes, and I'm sure she had regrets. When she got married for the second time, she had a a brief, real falling out with her son, Vivian. And they had always had a very close relationship. But the letters between them either completely stopped or were so intense that they were destroyed by the family. So there's this blank in the correspondence after her second marriage. But, you know, they patched things up. And eventually, at that point, she had settled in England. Eventually, she does come back to America and settles very close to her son, her now only surviving son. And they stayed very close for the rest of her life. 
So now in the years before that, she found Matham Manor in England. I mean, it even sounds like Misselthwaite Manor, the manor in her book. They're very similar. What were those years like? So in 1898, when Vivian, the son, graduates from college, she and her first husband decide to divorce. She, at that point, is living in London, and she decides, I'm going to move to the country. And so she rents this estate called Maytham Hall. It's in Kent, so that's south of London. It's not far from the English Channel. It's a beautiful part of the country with that, you know, sort of rolling English countryside. And Maytham Hall was 200 acres. It had a big house. It had tenants and she had staff. And suddenly she had a garden. And at 50 years old, she takes up gardening with a vengeance. So, you know, she said, it's my new fad. And she started, you know, really becoming a passionate gardener with the help of staff. You know, it's like she did go out and work in the garden herself, but I doubt she ever did the heavy digging. So just to give you a a feeling for what she did and did not do. But she obviously had a great feeling for flowers. She just loved them. One of her editors later said she buys flowers the way a bibliophile buys books, you know, that she just couldn't get enough of them. And she loved roses, correct? Absolutely. So, you know, the number one flower of Frances Hodgson Burnett was the rose. And in the book, The Secret Garden, when Mary Lennox unlocks the door to this walled garden, what she finds are these big canes of roses growing up into trees inside this garden. And she wonders if they're dead because a rose bush in the winter, if it's cold, you know, if you live in a cold climate, the leaves all fall off. And all you're left with are these long, branchy canes with a bunch of thorns. And you don't really know if they're alive. Having that come to life as well was part of the story in The Secret Garden. And Burnett had a very similar place at Maytham Hall. I understand from your book that Maytham Hall and its grounds have been somewhat neglected before she moved in. That's very similar to the story. Yes. And this particular garden that she made into her romantic rose garden had been an old orchard that really wasn't bearing anymore. So old fruit trees get very, I don't know, like wizened, you know, they get a lot of character. She talks about them covered with lichen. So you can imagine these trees, these old trees with a lot of personality. And she decided that that's where she wanted this little romantic rose garden, that she could train roses up into the trees And it would make a sort of bower where she could write and she could bring her close friends. And that's indeed what she does. She makes this space, you know, she has a writing table and one of those sort of rustic carpenter built chairs. And she sits out there whenever the weather is fine and her close friends go there with her. Now, I understand she had the opportunity to buy Matham Hall, but she passed on that. And then shortly after, that's when the secret garden appeared. Do you think she regretted leaving Matham? 
Oh, yes. I mean, she said, you know, it's the only place I ever felt I was truly home. That sense of what is home, what's that special place, was very important to her, even though she moved many times during her life. She had a very close feeling to Matham and its grounds and the little village and, you know, all the people that she knew. And yet, she didn't buy it. She certainly could have. I mean, she would have had the money to do it. But remember, she is now twice divorced. She has this one son, and he is living in New York City. He's working in New York City, and he wants her to come back to America because it was really far away, right? He's in America. She's in England. And so how can you resist that? He said, you know, come build a house close to New York. I can come visit you on the weekends. And so that's what she does. She buys a piece of property on the North Shore of Long Island, which is commuting distance. Even then there was the train to New York City. And so he could come out very easily on the weekends. She could go in and see him, although she did not love the city she seemed to really prefer the country. And so she just reestablished her life there. But again, it's right at that period that she writes The Secret Garden. So I think she takes all of these feelings. She's now got new material to work with. She knows about gardening, which she didn't before. She has befriended a robin, which, you know, had never happened to her before. So she takes all of that. The head gardener at Maytham Hall now becomes Ben Weatherstaff in The Secret Garden. And she does her magic with the fiction part of it and creates a story that is very emotionally rich. Now, since we are the Bird Hugger podcast, I have to ask about that Robin again. That Robin played a key role in The Secret Garden. And then, as you mentioned, Burnett herself had a friendship with a Robin, which she turned into a nonfiction article. And you have that story in the back of your book. It's very hard to find her book called My Robin, which is her true story of the real Robin that she met at Matham Hall and really developed a relationship with this wild bird. It's very funny because when I was a child reading this book, I of course had in mind an American robin, which is not the same as an English robin. It's just that we happen to use the same word to describe two very different bird species. The American robin is big. It's, you know, it's got this red breast, but the English robin well, it still has a red breast. It's much smaller. It's about the size of a wren. And it's quite inquisitive. So, you know, I'm trying to think of like an American bird that would be similar to that. I mean, around us, sometimes I'll get like the tufted titmice or a, uh, I don't know, occasionally a little Carolina wren will hop around the garden. But the English robins are very, they just don't seem to be that afraid of people. And if you're gardening in England, often a robin will come hang around. I think, you know, you're digging and it's going to be able to get bugs and things. At any rate, she got to the point where she could sort of whistle and this robin would come and they would have kind of conversations that she really had this feeling for this particular bird. She called him Tweety way before the... <laughs> 
way before Tweety Bird in the cartoons. That's what she, you know, she had this little friendly name she called him. Huh. And her friends, you know, wrote about it in letters or, you know, that there's a little drawing of the bird in her guest book from Maytham Hall. So this, you know, it was an actual feature that people commented on. So it's very charming to read this nonfiction piece about her bird and then read the fictional character that she creates about her Robin. She wrote, I find that Robins are fond of human society. They want to talk to you about their families and come hopping about your feet. And I have found that's absolutely true. That is true. So in the time we have remaining, I wanted to ask you about the afterword at the back of the book, which is from Burnett's great-great-granddaughter, Carrie Wilde. Now, did you get a chance to speak with her? Yes. Actually, we met at a conference, and it was before I wrote this book, but I had it in mind. And she said, you know, have you ever thought about writing about Frances Hodgson Burnett? Because I've written about other authors who garden And I said, well, you know, funny you should say that. And so that is how I made the acquaintance of Carrie Wilt, who was a gardener herself. And so, you know, it must have been sort of passed down in the family. And she was very kind to write a piece for the book. Well, Marta, I want to thank you for joining us today. I'm just being flooded with all kinds of wonderful memories of that book. I'm going to have to reread it. Absolutely. And it's still really, really charming. I want to thank Marta McDowell for joining us today. You can find her book, Unearthing the Secret Garden, by going to the Workman Publishing website at workman.com. The book is also available at amazon.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. I'm so glad you were able to join us for our special holiday episode of Bird Hugger. Whatever holiday you are celebrating, be it Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or Diwali, I hope you have a wonderful time. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.